reading Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife, but leaves no child, the man must take a widow and raise up, and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second, the second took her and died and left no offspring as well. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all the women, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they raise again, whose wife shall, will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they raise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but he is God of the living. You are quite wrong. Thanks, J.D., for reading that. I know that's a little bit longer than normal, so sorry you got stuck with it this week. But we read that for a reason. This is a big moment in Scripture for this group called the Sadducees. We spend a lot of time talking about the Pharisees and some other groups, but we don't say much about the Sadducees. They appear a few times in Scripture, but most of the time they're with somebody else. What J.D. just read for us, and there's parallel accounts in Matthew and in Luke as well, but what J.D. just read for us is the only time that just the Sadducees have a chance to interact with Jesus. So it's a big moment. It is a big moment for the Sadducees. And big moments have a way of leaving a big impact on us, don't they? And just yesterday, we spent a day as a nation in memorial for a big moment in our nation's history. And for those of us who were around on that day, it's a day where you remember exactly where you were and you remember what you were doing when you got the news. And for a lot of us, maybe it changed the way that we viewed our fellow Americans. I remember at the time, and I was pretty young when it happened, but I can still remember at the time that sense of unity in our country, that things really seemed to change, at least from my perspective. Folks who were so mad at each other before about little things here and there didn't seem quite as angry with each other anymore, and we kind of united more so, at least I think, than we are now, but that's just my personal opinion. But big moments leave a big impact upon us. When we look through Scripture and we see things like this interaction between the Sadducees and Jesus, it's really interesting to read through the Gospels and to think about every time somebody meets Jesus and every time someone has a conversation with Jesus, they're not just meeting a great teacher. This is somebody, this is a regular person just like us, having a chance to meet God himself in the flesh. And what bigger moment in life could any of us have? What bigger moment in any of these people's lives that we read about in the gospel could there possibly be other than the moment when they actually get to meet God in the flesh? They get to see God. They get to speak to God. And for the Sadducees, 
as we'll talk about in just a second, who are, I don't want to say maybe obsessed with the law, but their lives are dominated by God's law. This is what they live for. This is everything to them, and they get a moment to speak to the one who wrote it. Wouldn't that be amazing? You talk about a big moment. Well, what I want to do for just a few minutes that we have is just take a look at what J.D. just read for us, to take a look at what the Sadducees did with their big moment. Now, obviously, all of us have moments that sometimes they seem really big in the moment, and sometimes they really don't, and we can't tell they were a big moment until some time has gone by. But the Sadducees, I don't think, realize in the text just exactly how significant this moment is for them. And so when they're confronted with Jesus... When they are given God in the flesh and he teaches them something that they did not know before, they're going to have a certain kind of reaction to it. And as we think about the Sadducees, I want us to think about our own interactions with Christ. Whether that's that big moment, and maybe most of us here, I would imagine, have already had a big moment where we've decided to commit ourselves to Christ. And so we've already made that decision. We've, we've met Christ and we've come out on the other side of that with a decision to follow him. But our lives are filled with these little moments thereon after that maybe seem little at the time, but when we look back, we say, you know, that was a pretty big moment where I decided not to accept the teachings of Christ. So the Sadducees, I don't think I'm giving you a spoiler here, we're going to find that they don't use this moment in the way that they should, and they're going to give us a lot of warnings. So this morning, I just want to take a look at the Sadducees' moment with Christ, and see what we can learn from it. But if we're going to start the story of the Sadducees, just like anything else, we need to start at the very beginning. We need to back up a little bit before we see what's going on here in Mark chapter 12. The Sadducees, we don't know too much about them, but there are some important things. And I'm not a historian by any means. If you want to know more about these people, I imagine you can ask Dr. Bailey. I'm sure he knows everything about them. But the little bit that I've been able to find about the Sadducees Three quick things. Number one, they are high-class people, and they are priests. Their name actually might come from the priests they trace their lineage back to. These are priestly people. These are high-class people. Not only that, they are intensely devoted, intensely devoted to the law of Moses. In fact, a lot of rabbis, and even Josephus, who I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with, a historian from the time, they recognize the Sadducees as among the most strict of all of the Jews. So they keep the law very closely. They're very devoted. Their lives are dedicated to keeping God's law. And this is going to be really important for what Jesus has to say to them. These people know the scriptures. These people have learned it from a young age. And there's a very high possibility that even by the time they were 10 years old, they had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Could you imagine memorizing all of the first five books of the Old Testament? Can you imagine just sitting down and trying to memorize, I don't know, maybe two chapters of Leviticus? Maybe by the time they were 10 years old, 10 years old, we won't ask for a show of hands of who's 10 in here, but 10, they probably knew the entire Pentateuch. They knew the Bible. These folks knew it and they cared about it greatly. They were so strict. They were so strict. There are these laws in the law of Moses that, and this makes perfect sense, right? If you have a contaminated vessel and you pour water into a pure vessel, what happens to the pure vessel? Well, it gets dirty, right? Because you just poured dirty water into it. Well, here's how strict the Sadducees are. They say, 
even if you take a pure vessel and you're just dumping out the water and you dump it into an impure vessel, just the very fact that the water is flowing between them and they're connected, now the clean one is dirty just because by way of association. They are very, very strict. And that's just one pretty specific example of dealing with vessels and water. How much more then would you assume they are careful with their behavior and with their actions and maybe even with their attitudes. So these are the kind of people that we're talking about. And we see in the text that they don't believe in a resurrection. But it's not just that they don't believe in a resurrection. They also don't believe that humans don't have, or that humans have souls. They don't believe you have any kind of soul. They don't believe that anything is going to exist after death. And the only hope in life is basically raising good children so that they can continue the promise for Israel on into the future. So that's a little bit about who the Sadducees are. Now, when we meet them in the text, we don't have a lot of positive things about them. They come up twice before this. Once, John the Baptist calls them a brood of vipers. So maybe not the best introduction that you would like to have for your group of people. It says they're a brood of vipers. And then Jesus is going to have something to say about them later. He's going to warn his apostles. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's talking about their teachings. And when we get right here in the text in Mark chapter 12, They're doing what we would expect them to do. This is just two days after Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the final time. Just five days later, Jesus is going to be crucified and rise from the grave. So we're in the last week of the life of Christ here. And after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's met with a series of opponents. And at the end of chapter 11, you're going to find that the scribes and priests come to him and they challenge his authority. This is where we read, Jesus gives them that great answer in the form of a question. He says, well, if you want to know my authority, you tell me where John's baptism came from, heaven or from man. And they can't answer him. So the first opponents are knocked down. The second set of opponents are Pharisees. They ask him about taxes. They're trying to trap him. And now the Sadducees come to him. And the Sadducees are going to trap him, not with a question about taxes, not with some question about his authority, but they're going to ask him a very difficult question about the resurrection. And so when we get to the actual encounter with Christ... The question they're asking has to do with Deuteronomy 25, which is a law that says basically if, you're, if your brother dies, you are responsible for taking care of his wife. And so they ask this ridiculous question to make the teaching seem as absurd as possible so that they can make Jesus in public look ridiculous. They're trying to reduce the prominence that Jesus has among the Jewish people probably so they can gain a little prominence themselves. So they bring to him this great challenge But it's also a pretty decent question. The question in and of itself is not necessarily a bad question. But look at how Jesus responds to them. He says, Is this not why you are wrong? You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now I want you to imagine that you are someone who has quite literally known all of your Scripture... They only use the first five books, by the way. Imagine you are someone who has all of it memorized in your head. You're an expert. And you come with this great question. It's a hard... Listen, they would not have asked Jesus that question if it wasn't a difficult question. There's, There's a great chance that nobody else could really have a good answer for this question. I'm sure they had asked this question to a lot of smart people before. Most, in fact, the Sadducees are the only group at the time... 
out of the Jewish community that doesn't believe in the resurrection. Everyone else believes in some kind of resurrection. This question's got to be a tough one. And he responds by saying, he assumes they're wrong. He says, isn't this why you're wrong? You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. I imagine they would have immediately objected. I do know the scriptures. In fact, I have them all memorized. Which passage do you want? You want something out of Genesis? You want something out of Exodus? Where do you want it? I, I know the scriptures. What do you mean I don't know the scriptures? What do you mean I don't know the power of God? Jesus tells them exactly what they've missed. And I don't want to get down in the weeds of what's going on here, but I do at least want to notice, if you notice what J.D. read for us a moment ago, what passage does he use to prove to them that they're wrong about the resurrection? He says, haven't you read? And in Luke's account, he's going to say, hasn't God told you in the account of the bush? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, suppose for a second that Jesus had taken some very obscure passage. Maybe something out of, you know, mining down into the details of Leviticus. And he says, no, there was a little detail you missed here. You didn't think... He's using a passage that is of extreme importance and significance to the Jewish identity overall. This is the burning bush. This is when God... Everybody knows the story of the burning bush, don't we? I mean, we could probably recite most of that. Take off your sandals because the place in which you are standing is holy ground. I mean, this is a passage we know. It's a passage that we're very familiar with. Jesus shows them, you know the scriptures, but you don't really know them. You might be able to recite the scriptures, but you've missed out on the power of God, denying God's power to overcome the last enemy to be defeated, and that enemy is death. And quite ironically, just a few days later, Jesus is going to prove them wrong, not just with reasoning from Scripture, but from the very power of God that he's speaking about here. And that power of God is going to bring Jesus out of the grave and prove that eternal hope that waits on all of us. But the bottom line of all this, and I I really like the way that Jesus responds here, especially that last little thing that we read, after this really harsh response, the last thing he says is, you are quite wrong. I think I might start using that in my day-to-day just conversations. Maybe someone's wrong. You want to know why? Is this not why you're wrong about this? Finish my little discussion and say, you are quite wrong. I love the way that he does this, but the bottom line is simply that they are actually very wrong. So, here's the reason we're going through the story. The Sadducees have been raised learning something their entire lives. Jesus brings them a teaching that challenges their long-held tradition. Jesus brings them a teaching that challenges their opinions at the time. And can we not all sympathize with that? I mean, maybe we can't sympathize with being a first century high-class priestly person. I mean, there's a lot of gaps probably between where we are and where they were back then. But can we not sympathize with the concept of being challenged by the teachings of Christ? Wherever that may be in our lives. And that doesn't stop when we make the commitment to follow Christ, does it? I don't think it's as if once we've made that commitment, now all of a sudden, every teaching and every command we come across in Scripture, we don't have some kind of hesitation 
And we don't need to look any further for an example of that than the prophet Jonah. Jonah's been a man of God for a long time, for a very long time, and he still decides to disobey God, quite frankly, because he disagrees with what God is planning to do. And so I wonder, in our moments where we're challenged like the Sadducees, what we're going to do about it. Now just very quickly, this is not the end of the story of the Sadducees in Scripture. They pop up a couple more times. You can find them in Acts chapter 4. Maybe we're hoping that something got through. You know, we see Paul, who's a Pharisee. Paul changes. So maybe we're going to hope, maybe out of this crowd, and if we can treat the crowd as basically their own character for a minute, we're going to hope they're going to change. We're going to hope they're going to use this moment for good. In Acts chapter 4, we find them opposing Peter and John. In Acts chapter 5, we find them arresting the apostles. And in Acts chapter 23, we find them on hand for the trial of Paul. And it's very clear in the trial of Paul that they did not listen to the teachings of Christ because, once again, there's a big debate. And this is how Paul slips out of there. He causes, basically, an actual fight about the resurrection. The Sadducees are still very passionately opposed to the teachings of Christ. Not too long after, this comes from some writings in history in the year 62... The brother of Jesus named James is going to be put to death by a high priest named Ananus. Ananus is the Sadducee. So the Sadducees, after this great encounter with Jesus, they don't do what we expect them to do. They don't do what we all hope we will do when we're put in the same situation. There's no change. So I have just three quick observations about the Sadducees, and I think they stand as three points of warning to all of us in our interactions with Christ, but also the Sadducees in a very unique way remind us of the great hope that we have as Christians. So it's not just all warnings and gloom and doom. There is a strong reminder in the story of the Sadducees about the great hope that awaits us as Christians. So in the first place, I think the problem that the Sadducees have is they are too stubborn to admit that they are wrong. And I know a lot of folks that know me right now are probably starting to giggle at the fact that I'm up here talking about being stubborn. But they're too stubborn to admit that they're wrong. And what's so ironic here is that Jesus has already told them that they're going to be too stubborn to listen to him. In Matthew chapter 16, he's going to tell them, they ask him for a sign in the first four verses of Matthew 16. They demand a sign. And Jesus tells them in verse 4, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And I tell you that this generation will receive only the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah, we're talking about resurrection here. In Jewish tradition at the time, Jonah is very firmly associated with the resurrection. The time that Jonah spends in the belly of the whale, comes out of the whale, Jesus is saying, you're going to see one sign and it's going to be a really big one. But when we read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, do you remember what the words to the rich man are when he asks if someone can go back? He says, if somebody can just go back from the dead and teach my family, then they will listen. They will listen if someone goes back from the dead. Do you remember what they're told? They have Moses and the prophets. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen if someone returns from the dead. And the Sadducees... Do not. They're too stubborn to listen. 
But I also think they're too prideful to accept the gospel. If you want to turn over to Colossians chapter 2, we'll spend a little bit of time in Colossians. Too prideful to accept the gospel. Ultimately, they chose their self-made religion over the new life that Christ offered them. Remember, the Sadducees rely on their strict adherence to the law. And I think it's very concerning. Most of the time when we talk about people leaving God or rejecting God or having this big moment with Christ and not obeying Him, we think about the prodigal son. We think about somebody who runs off and who rejects the teachings of Christ outright. They want nothing to do with the Father, period. We think about blatant disobedience and open rebellion in some very obvious and easy ways to spot. What we don't so often think about is the brother who stayed at home. The brother who is still in his father's house, but equally as disobedient to the father. These people, their disobedience to God is found in the way that they strictly adhere to the law. Their disobedience is found in that strict adherence to the law. They will not accept anything else. They will not accept what Christ himself has to say to them. So as we come back to this statement, you do not know the scriptures, what it is that they were missing. What is it, I mean? What is it they are missing about the scriptures? Well, let's look in Colossians chapter 2. Paul has something to say about this kind of, quote, religion. Choosing religion over choosing righteousness. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all pertain, or excuse me, that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, there are regulations that come from human wisdom that we can place on God's law that make us feel really good. There are things we can do and actions that we can perform. And if you're a Sadducee that keeps the law so diligently, don't you know you go to bed at night hanging your hat on the fact that you have earned your way into God's favor because of the way you have kept his law. That day, like you haven't messed up pouring the water in the different vessels. No, you haven't messed up. You haven't, you've, you've followed the law more strictly than anybody else. And so you go to bed thinking you've earned your way into God's favor. And I think there's a temptation for us to do the same thing now. Now, obviously, our list is not quite the same, I don't think, that their list might have been. But maybe there are some certain key actions that we think if we can just get this thing right, God owes me something. Or if if I work this hard at keeping the law, and if I work this hard at following these commands, God's going to owe me something. And so when we go to bed at night and we think I've done this and this and this to earn my way towards this big prize, to earn my way towards this big cosmic reward then you're going to feel pretty good, not about the power of God, you're going to feel pretty good about yourself. 
you're going to feel pretty good about, I have done so great. And we're going to sound a lot like that Pharisee in the parable of the, the publican and the tax collector, aren't we? We're going to sound a lot like, or the Pharisee and the publican, we're going to sound a lot like the man who prays to God, thank you that I am not like other people. Thank you that I have managed to make myself so righteous. We are not going to pray, thank you God for calling me righteous. Thank you God for giving me the gift of salvation. You see, doing things like this, they can make us feel really good and they can look really good on the outside. The only problem here is what Paul says at the end of this in verse 23. He says, these now look, these do have an appearance of wisdom and they do promote some of these things, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Basically, you haven't solved the problem. And if we want an example of that, I don't think we have to look any further than the Sermon on the Mount, do we? You remember in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, when you give to the needy, well, let's back up just a second. In chapter 5, he tells them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness is like theirs, in other words, then this is not the kind of righteousness God is looking for. And when he gets to chapter 6, he's going to tell you, now they give to the needy, they do give to the needy, but when they give, the reward they're looking for is the pat on the back. They want to look good. They want to feel good. And Jesus tells them in every case, he talks about prayer. He talks about giving. He talks about fasting. And in every single case, he says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So there is a reward. There is a reward for that kind of righteousness. There is the pat on the back. There is the looking good in front of other people, and there is the feeling good. But Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, you do these things in secret. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. You move on just a little bit. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. We think about treasure we think about cash. We think about cars. We think about houses. We think about all these. We think about material. But aren't there other treasures on earth than those sorts of things? I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus is directly attacking this righteousness for the sake of pride, this hollow kind of righteousness. And then we get to this passage that says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. There's a lot more different kinds of treasures on earth than just the things that you own. All those things are going to fade away. Moth and rust will destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. He says there's a better one out there. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth destroys where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that leads me to this last point. I think the Sadducees, not only are they too stubborn to admit they're wrong, or too prideful to accept the gift of grace that we could read about in Ephesians chapter 2. But they're just too earthly-minded to see heaven. Quite literally speaking, they believe there is no eternal dwelling place with God. 
too earthly to see heaven. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, very short statement, very profound. Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? There are some rewards that wait for us here and now if we choose the kind of righteousness of the Sadducees. If we choose an outward form of righteousness that inwardly is still not really accepted the teachings of Christ, or if we choose an outward form of righteousness that still just, it cannot let go of pride, it cannot let go of stubbornness in certain areas of our life where we do not, and in fact sometimes will not, submit ourselves to change, we still get some kind of reward. But what does it profit a man to gain all of that if he loses his soul? There's something much better. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if we start reading in verse 17, I think we find some very important concepts about the new life that we have in Christ. When we get to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and we start in verse 17, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There are a few different ways to think about the things that are truly life, where actual life really lives. And if you are to ask the Sadducees, true life lies in the confidence that we have in keeping the law ourselves. True life lies in keeping the appearance of righteousness. True life lies in having that admiration, having that respect from other people as they look around us and point and say, how righteous is this person? God tells you something very different. He'll tell you, true life is not found in you. True life is found in me. And I'm willing to give it to you as a gift. Now certainly, we're not going to say here today that, yes, grace is a gift and so it doesn't matter what we do. And Paul's going to say that same thing in Romans chapter 6. He says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? In verse 1, and you know exactly what he says after that. He says, by no means or absolutely not. And his reasoning is rooted in the new life that we have in Christ. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that as many of us were baptized into Christ or baptized into his death, we were, there, we were buried therefore with him in a death like his so that we will share in a resurrection like his. We are raised to walk in a newness of life. And here's what the Sadducees miss. The life that they want is just the life here and now. Quite literally, they're not interested in any life in the future. Sadly, though, I think sometimes we live in the same way. We live as if there's not some kind of eternal life that we're striving for that has begun now. You know what's so interesting from Romans chapter 6? Paul says that we have been buried with Christ to be raised with Him, to walk in this newness of life so that we can share in a resurrection like His. In baptism... We undergo a death and we enjoy a resurrection to a new kind of life. And this resurrection is the beginning of the fullness of the resurrection that we will receive at the end of time. 
And a lot of times, I think when we think about resurrection, we think that is something for the final day. And so when the resurrection comes, then I'm going to be made purely clean. I'm going to be made perfect. I'm going to be made all these things. But a long time from now, the due date is still way, way out. The project is not due. The supervisor, the professor doesn't need it until a long time from now. So we don't work on it. We don't work on it because why would we? We've got uh, a lot of time left to work on it. And if you can remember maybe back to the days you're in school, if you've got an assignment due in three months, you go home and you start working on that project that night and you get it done and you turn it in. No. No, you don't. You wait until probably about maybe 11 o'clock the night before that it's due at midnight and then you email your, your teacher and you say, hey, I'm really sorry. I've been too busy. So if the due date's a long way off, we don't tend to work on it. But what we learn from Romans chapter 6 is this resurrection is something that starts right now. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Since we have been raised to walk in the newness of life, we start living this way now. We live it now. We don't wait later. We live it right now. We don't live in an earthly way. We live as resurrected people. We live as people who have undergone this spiritual resurrection. It's not too much to say that our resurrection truly begins when we come out of the waters of baptism. And I don't think it's any coincidence. If you'd like to flip back over to Colossians chapter 3 as we close. We just read that these sorts of things have an appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value. And look what Paul says after this in Colossians 3, the very next sentence. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What's the solution to using this kind of hollow religion over the righteousness of God? He says, well, it's pretty simple. Quit thinking in earthly terms. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. The Sadducees had their big moment. They didn't do anything with it. And I wonder if right now, this could be a moment for you. Not because of a sermon, but because of this kind of Savior. Could this be a moment where you decide that you need to do something about coming into contact with God himself. This morning could be the moment. This could be the time when you make a very important decision. Yeah, it's hard to relate to the Sadducees, but we at least have this commonality with them. The same life is offered to all of us. The same grace of God is offered to all of us. Jesus himself has taught us about this new life. What are we going to do with it? I'd like to ask you, as we close here, not to wait. Because you don't know. You don't know when that day is, is going to come. I remember the story about the three demons. These three demons get together and they decide, okay, we're going to try to figure out the best way to rip people away from God. And the first says, well, that's easy. Just tell them there's no God. They don't have a chance. Well, the second one says, well, 
that's probably not going to work. There's going to be a lot of ways they can tell there is a God. A lot of them are probably going to believe in a God. But let's just let's tell them that God exists, but let's just tell them that he doesn't care. Like he's cool with whatever they want to do. And the third one says, no, that's not going to work either. Because they've got the scriptures. They're going to know that God has a plan for them. They're going to know that God wants them to be back in his presence. And that's going to require them to fulfill that purpose he created them for in the first place. They're going to know all that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach them there is a God. We're going to teach them his scripture. We're going to teach them that they do need to change. But we're also going to teach them that they have all the time in the world to make that decision. Because many of them will never make it. Don't be that this morning. If there's anything you need, we hope that you'll come now as we sing together.